0: Hello, Welcome to Series 2, Episode 5 of The Leadfellas Sadly, we have lost one of our founding members, Steve, far too young However, he was very committed to these podcasts And in his honour, we will press on In fact, we recorded several segments with him That have not been previously released And in this episode, we get to hear Steve describe his early days As a young journeyman in the typesetting industry As well, we'll be talking about Steve Jobs' contribution to type. We'll take a look at mummy paper and round out with another hidden press story, this time in Australia. So settle in to hear some amazing tales of the print industry in days gone by. Thank you.
1: Adventures of a Young Compositor, Part 1. This is uh, from our blog. You can read it and... um... See any appropriate pictures if you go and have a look? So, the story goes, after completing my apprenticeship in Sydney in the mid-70s, I wanted to get out into the world and learn more about my trade. Recently married, we threw all our belongings into the car and headed west, bound for Perth. We made it as far as Adelaide and decided to stay. I had a few different jobs in Adelaide over the course of the nearly two years that we were there. Most of these adventures relate to that period of my life. I was employed as a compositor in a print shop in the northwest suburbs of Adelaide, the name of which I shall withhold for my own reasons. It was a fairly small shop with only a few employees and a lot of ancient equipment. The composing room had quite a lot of monotype font cases, a metal saw, mitre cutter, a few racks of leads and print furniture. The foreman, a lovely old guy, ran the large format Wharfdale single colour printing press a Heidelberg platen, and the old Chandler and Price paper guillotine. This was old, old, old stuff. There was also a hand-fed Chandler and Price um, printing press, which was used for printing small cards or flyers. During my time there, I learned quite a bit about all of these ancient machines, and they were ancient even back then, and I even operated them at times. I would often be asked to print some business cards on the hand-fed beastie, Quite an experience. The images shown on the blog are very similar models to the ones I'm talking about. So the boss was also quite ancient. He drove an old Wolseley to work and there was a Morris 1100 that the sales reps could use if they had to visit a client. Most of the time, though, the three sales reps were on the phones drumming up business. It turned out, as I later discovered, the business was just a tad shonky, shonky, shonky. So, the bread and butter work was magazines for local councils. There was some sort of arrangement whereby the councils would supply editorial information about their area, such as history, landmarks, services, for each edition, while we were authorised to sell advertising space to local businesses. Everything seemed above board, I had no reason to think otherwise. I'd be kept busy designing advertisements using the various monotype fonts that I had at my disposal. I would create a proof to give to the sales rep to take out to the customers for approval, and we didn't have any fax machines or emails. But when the print deadline was reached each month, the editorial text would come in direct from the Linotype Tradehouse, and I would have all the adverts ready to go. I would assemble all the pages ready for printing. The size of the edition would be up to 32 pages, depended entirely on how many advertisements had been sold. We would then print 100 copies, a female table hand would come in to fold them and then they would be trimmed and stapled ready for delivery for the council offices. Plus one copy was delivered to each advertiser. The problem that I found out many months later was that the customers believed that we were printing 5,000 copies and distributing them throughout the area. How did I find out? Well. One day, the boss came in with a full-page ad for one of the magazines, but it was well after publication date. He told me to set it up anyway and drop it into Page 3 and remove the ad that was there. I did this, gave it to the printer. He printed one copy of the magazine. It was folded and stapled. The boss took the completed magazine to the customer and got paid for the ad. Unfortunately for the customer, he had the only copy of his ad. When the penny when the penny finally dropped, I decided it was time to move on before I got arrested. <laughs> oh, what a carry on! Yes, and that's a true story.
0: The <laughs> name's No Pack Drills, but does the company still exist today?
1: I very much doubt it. I mean, the guy was old when I was there, so he'd be long gone unless he's, he had a son who was as being as shrunk as he was.
0: <laughs> yeah. Having said that, though,
1: Ooh.
0: it's not uncommon. I, I used to get a lot of. emails probably got them too. Those of calls, Steve, where people say, "Oh, do you want to advertise in the police magazine?" and and it's a special magazine just put out for the police. We well, out yeah, advertise your, your business there and or for yeah. company or, or this that and the other yeah. Um, I'm, I'm not saying they're shocks but I bet my bottom dollar that those ads. <laughs>
1: I'm not saying they And not going too far. No. They're not travelling around the country, that's for sure. No. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, fun game.
0: Uh, This time from Leadfellas, we're going to talk about how Steve Jobs unleashed fonts to the digital community and helped make us a whizzy weak society. Steve Jobs, the man behind Apple computers and related products, that have forever changed the PC and application landscape through Macintosh, iPad, iPhone, to name a few. For me, it was this initial flirtation for him with calligraphy that was most interesting. According to his various biographies, Steve Jobs dropped out of college and spent about 18 months of studying calligraphy. It was his love of the subject that became a motif for his later works and projects. Rather like John Baskerville, was also a student of calligraphy and later played with form and style as a carver of tombstones, who then went on to become a great font developer in his own right. Both of the men exhibited a passion for the written word, and here's a short quote. Jobs said when he gave Stanford University's 2005 graduation speech, I learned about serif and sans-serif typefaces, about varying the amount of space between different letter combinations and what makes great topography great when we were designing the first macintosh computer it all came back to me and we designed it all into the mac it was the first computer with beautiful topography i have never dropped in on that single course in college the mac would never have had multiple typefaces or proportionately spaced fonts and since windows just copied the mac it's likely that no personal computer would have had them and that's a quote from hollywood reporter The next quote was, Steve Jobs was the first to give us a real choice of fonts and thus the ability to express ourselves digitally with emotion, clarity and variety. But Jobs realized their value of fonts like nobody else and engaged in personal computers in the early 1980s. And suddenly we were no longer dependent on professional printers, graphic designers, and those long dark nights of the soul with rubbed down letters. The one thing we owe Steve Jobs is this change to our society. Steve Jobs created a base of initial fonts, giving the names of cities like London, Chicago, and Geneva. He tried to express typographically a character or influence in the font. London was similar to a black letter style, and Swiss to a sans serif font. Eventually, Times New Roman and Helvetica made it to the lineup. This emphasis on fonts would move the fairly trade-specific term to a much bigger audience the PC world and paved the way for the modern WYSIWYG systems that are in use everywhere today. let see, if Jobs, typographically, well done. Any comments?
1: No. It makes sense that he was one of us, really. I mean, the Apple Mac was what came out for the, uh, the industry, wasn't it? It's Everybody so
0: cool, won. I mean, Mac, Mac ended up sort of zooming past the the, the typesetting machines, the Pentas and, 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 and all the pod set, whatever it was, and it became the, the standard. I mean, there was a little bit of stuff on the side, the Amiga and stuff, but really the Mac is, this, to this day, the standard.
1: Yeah, that's right. And, uh, yeah, so he was uh, very instrumental in the whole thing.
0: That's for sure. Just interesting, you know, had, had he stuck with his uni degree or whatever and not dropped out to, to go into like a zen buddhist type thing with calligraphy we may never have had all these out. we just had courier double spaced and, and stuff like that yeah yeah
1: Indeed.
0: here's a great tale in which paper is again the central theme as the pursuit of dunny paper has become an extreme sport in today's pandemic world, here is a tale of mummy paper. Spurred on by 19th century paper shortages, some enterprising entrepreneurs hit upon a unique way to bolster supply. And this tale was suggested to me by fellow Steve, who thought it might make an interesting story. Readers of our blogs have seen several references to the need to keep up paper supplies in the burgeoning days of print here in Australia. Advertisements for Spanish paper were common to keep the Sydney Gazette production rolling. By 1840, the Australian had reported that the annual consumption of newspaper material amounts in this colony alone comes to 6,000 reams. The other printing paper used may average about 3,000 reams. At a time when no paper mills existed in the colony, this pales into insignificance when we look at paper volumes in the United States. Quote, by the 1850s, papermaking in America was reaching a crisis point. America was producing more newspapers than any other country, and its paper consumption was equal to England and France's combined. According to one 1856 estimate, it would take 6,000 wagons, each carrying two tonnes of paper, to carry all the paper consumed by American newspapers in a single year. This equals out to a need for 405 million pounds of rags, the 800 paper mills then at work in the United States and that came from Wikipedia so you might be asking what do rags have to do with paper if you read our earlier blog entries covering paper there are some descriptions of how early papers were made of cotton fibers wooden pulp paper as used today was not in general use during this period so here's a quote again from Wikipedia when the technique of paper making found its way into Europe paper was made not from trees, but from pulp of cotton and then linen rag fibres. The technique of paper making first came to America in Germantown, Pennsylvania, in 1690. In fact, the problem with paper was, and its supply was so great that in 1855, the London Times offered a £1,000 prize to anyone who could come up with a viable alternative paper making process. Into this supply chain, we have an Indiana Jones wannabe turning up. Dr. Isaiah Deck, an English-born, New York resident, geologist, explorer and part-time archaeologist came along. He'd been trying to find alternative fibres to use in paper making but had had no luck. In 1847 he was in Egypt searching for lost antiquities when he came upon mummy linen. He also noticed the large number of mummies and associated bits that were lying around in group burial sites referred to as mummy pits. With complete disregard for ancient Egyptian culture and its artifacts, Dr. Deck did some wild calculations based on the following. Imagine 2,000 years of mummification in a population of 8 million people with an average age of 33 years. That would result in about 500 million mummies. With an average of 30 pounds of linen in each, the current paper consumption in the United States of 15 pounds per person per year, well, that would be enough for 14 years. By then... There will be a substitute for rags. Hmm. Seems a familiar style argument that fuels today's power industries too. But I digress. At this point, I should say that people of the period are not so squeamish about mummies and handling them. A quote from Wikipedia again. At this time period, Egyptian mummies were reasonably well known to the public in America. Many mummies had been part of exhibits and been shown in museums and travelling shows across the country. In fact, Dr. Pettigrew was the operator of one such show where he would unwrap or unroll mummies in front of a crowd for their amusement Uh, Couldn't imagine that sort of thing taking off but there again, you never know So did the good doctor's maths result in industrial scale tomb robbing? Here's where the story becomes more interesting It's open for debate as to whether mummy linen was used to manufacture large amounts of paper Rags were imported from Egypt during this time For example, in 1855 one company imported uh, 1,215 bales of rags at four cents a pound. Further, over the next year, about two and a quarter million pounds of rags were imported from Egypt. Other reports indicated that the rags were extensively stained. and had to be turned into brown paper for use in wrapping, butcher paper and parcels. At this point, um, it was lead fellow Steve who also brought up a, an article he had seen where there was and implied if you like mummy's curse on this paper and people said um, that cholera was caught by those handling materials while working on it. I don't think very much it was so much as a mummy's curse but rather um, poor sanitation and due to the water supply where they were treating the uh, cotton. Uh, It does make a good story though and it all kind of ties in with this. Well, we have to then take along Uh, The next question, did they or didn't they mass-produce mummy paper? Several theories abound. Unfortunately, there's very little hard evidence. The papermaking process in which the rags are pulped makes scientific methods like carbon-14 dating unviable. Import records, where they exist, are fairly sketchy or non-existent. Many records are based on oral histories. Again, not verifiable or they were even wild tongue-in-cheek stories. For example, Mark Twain gave this tale about the use of Egyptian mummies as boiler fuel on trains, given that they were infused in tar or pitch in his work *Innocents Abroad. And, well, if paper wasn't the main use for all the imported mummies, what was? We turn again to Wikipedia for a suggestion. Quote, There are many sources relating to the use of ground-up mummies in pharmaceuticals. In fact, Merck and company sold mummy up until 1910. Ground-up mummified bodies also produce a brown pigment, still referred to as mummy brown or Egyptian brown. The colour is no longer produced from mummies. Additional byproducts of mummies included the distillation of the bodies to produce aromatic oils, and also for use in machine oils, soaps and even incense. Clearly mummies were the multi-product import of choice, much as the buffalo or whale had been before them. Well what do we make of it all? It's a great story. Can you imagine a Stephen King novel? Printed on it. We'll leave it for you to decide and make up your own mind if indeed mummy paper was used for printing as an actual thing. The final outcome was a win for the paper supply as the efforts to improve wood pa- pulp based paper ramped up and made the ever continuing growth of the print media possible to this very day. Uh, over to you, ladies. Any comments? Yeah, right.
1: We've come a long way, haven't we? But yeah. then again, we haven't. All right. yeah, it's so that. But at the moment, you feel I like would come nowhere. You know, we're going back. And,
0: yeah. Well, this story is called Hard Cash, and that's an Australian secret printing press tale. Now, we had an earlier story about Joseph Stalin's secret printing press. Well, this story is a lot closer to home, well, for us anyway, being Australians. It was while listening to the podcast Behind the Bastards that a reference was made for secret press and publications printed around 1893 to 1894 in Sydney. It has links to early prime ministers, as well as well-known literary figures like Henry Lawson, and the lead pillars just had to know more. In searching this blog entry, I came across a number of small pieces of information that I've put together from various sources, and we'll be having those in the um, podcast and, and on, on the YouTube uh, We're not gonna cover the politics and beliefs of the key author, Arthur Desmond. If you want to know more about him, I would suggest starting with Wikipedia articles and perhaps even listen to the podcasts about him in Behind the Bastards. A very interesting man. And unfortunately, some of his um, interests come through today in a very radical way, which is extremely unfortunate. Now, where does the story start? Arthur Desmond arrived in Sydney from New Zealand around 1892 after writing under the name Ragnar Redbeard, he published the weekly newspaper, Hard Cash. He particularly targeted the banks, including printing thousands of stickers of the words, Going Bung, which were plastered over the banks on the eve of the bank crashes in 1893. And that came from Brisbane in revolt, a very, very useful website if you'd like to look at revolutionary activities in Australia. Desmond became a leading figure of socialist politics where he acquired a reputation as a banking expert. In May, 1893, the first issue of Hard Cash, which he which essentially he edited, he attacked banks and exposed the self-interest of capitalists and clergymen. It's a story nowadays, but we won't progress. He became associated with William Morris Hughes, later a Prime Minister of Australia. Desmond collaborated with Hughes on a political broadsheet, which evolved into a radical periodical titled The New Order, and he became part of the circle surrounding McNamara's bookshop at 221 Castle Race Street. which was demolished in 1922, associated with Louisa Lawson and her son Henry, Jack Lang, Tommy Walker, and future Prime Minister of Australia, Alfred Deacon. That's from Wikipedia. And just as an aside, we'll be putting together a story about um, Henry Lawson's mother. She actually was a feminist, and she published an all female paper. And that's a very interesting story in itself about this period. Hard cash and other writings of Arthur Desmond infuriated the authorities. And Desmond's answer superiors. Colonial Secretary George R. Dibbs is reported to have held up a copy of hard cash during a cabinet meeting and said, this thing has cost us three million pounds. A lot of money of the day. What is the detective force in this city doing? Though so in what appears to be a, like a Caper Cops episode, the politicians and the police were after him and his associates. Arthur Desmond continued the publication of hard cash. To confuse things, the publication appeared to have no fixed address for it was printed. Along with misleading issue and volume numbers, the authorities were led Mary Chase. Here's an excerpt from the magazine's production taken from articles of early conspiracies of ALP history. J.A. Ross has claimed responsibility for initiating setting and printing hard cash, carried out, he said, in his Paddington lodgings. Despite special police duty and extra detectives being brought from Melbourne and New Zealand, it continued to appear until September. Five issues in all, each showing arbitrary dates and volume numbers to confuse the pursuers. The press easily was easily moved and drop-off points for copy were varied and distribution was a strictly guarded affair. Arthur Desmond had many helpers at hand. Jack Lang, who wrote himself into Desmond Legion, spoke of helping turn the mangle and set the type at 25 Rose Street Darlington, which is where Desmond lived during, in 1894, according to the electoral roll. How was the publication produced? At a private house in Underwood Street, Paddington, in the one little black back room upstairs with a couple of fonts of type, an opposing stone and a Demi Folio Albion Press. Um, it's only a very small um, press. Uh, the, the date of the earliest issue of hard cash is so the 22nd of May, 1893. It also shows volume one, number 23. That number 23 is misleading. It was a suggestion of Desmond's. After five or six, no one seems to agree on the number, Editions were printed, the equipment was broken up and removed. The press is something quite small and can sit on a table or a stand. This makes it easy to transport to various secret locations if required. In fact, it's actually not far removed from something Gutenberg would have used. Uh, some of the uh, physical attributes of the paper, it was a large quarto size, a good surface paper and four pages in size. The number of printed issues was 200 copies, with about 15 in to city and country papers, in order to secure as wide a per- publicity as possible. With it's psychometric analysis of bank, and other balance sheets, and interesting paragraphs, a big feature of this. The other 150 copies were given to Desmond to do with what he liked, and keep the money on the sides. As always, there was big demand for hard cash, I was told, at six pence per copy. Eventually all good things come to an end and hard cash was closed down. The detectives never rested the people behind hard cash, but everything about its production is mysterious. How many copies were produced Later, some commentators say 200, but others suggest this is too low, given its impact. How many issues were there? The greatest estimate is 40. Did they appear fortnightly or sporadically? It was produced in Sydney Sussex Street, or was it in Rose Street, Darlington, or was it in Underwood Street, Paddington, or in a cave near West Bush, Paddington? No one knew. Reports at the time said, during the bank crisis of 1893, Desmond had done 48 hours jail for riding going bung, on the savings bank. Although well, it was well known, he was the editor of Hard Cash, an iconoclastic publication that told lots of unpleasant truths and asked inconvenient questions, the police could never fasten a charge on him. The of Hard Cash was vague, purposely so, being dated Parramatta or some other remote thoroughfare for the sleuths to Or well, The paper was actually produced in a cellar in Sussex Street. And that came from the Probe database, another really good source, if you like, to look at these early documents. there fled the country with warrants out for his arrest. The Bush poet Henry Lawson composed a poem in defence of Desmond which appeared in the New Zealand periodical Fairplay in 1893. Arthur Desmond fled to Sydney bound for the US. Again, this story is murky with various reports. He fought in the First World War, the Boer War, etc. Reading his history, you can see he was quite a firebrand in his era, and that his thoughts still bubble up today. Also, it's quite interesting to see the effect that the printed media has had in its time to store promotions, a job that the Internet has largely taken over today. That's Mr Arthur Desmond, hard cash and a ragtag team of, um, I suppose, we call them commas today, the socialists, radical things, Dissidents. <laughs> um, Bunch of dissidents. I mean, <laughs> the thing is, is that it's far more credible than the Joe Stalin story, I'll give it that. And the um, similar ends. Yeah, this, this fellow, unfortunately, his writings live today with, uh, I think it's the book's called Writer's Might. He has some very ugly racial. Arthur Desmond and, and the yeah, gang. Yeah, <laughs> the dark
1: side of the print industry.
0: <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, this is quite a few.
1: Thank you for making it so far with us. If you liked what you heard, please visit our Facebook site at Fellas, where we will be leaving links and copies of the things we covered on this podcast. There's also an active blog site called Ledfellas Blog, one word, where you can find links to our podcast and YouTube channel. We welcome your feedback and comments as well. Drop us a line at either our Facebook or blog site. Please join us in upcoming podcasts to hear more from the Fellows, and we hope you enjoy the ride as much as we have.